You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And I'm your co-host, Prashant Parmesmarn from Washington, D.C. How's it going today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. There's a, there's a lot on the agenda today, isn't there? Especially with all this uh, recent Korean uh, Peninsula news with a uh, Trump-Kim summit. So I'll just go over real quickly how we got to where we are today. And where we are today is, again, not very clear. So everybody's heard the big news that U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un are supposedly going to have a summit. And the way we've gotten to those headlines is because South Korea's national security advisor and the director of national intelligence um, traveled to Washington, D.C. and presented a message from Kim Jong-un verbally to Donald Trump conveying an invitation to meet at some point. There's no destination, there's no formal written invitation, um, but here's where we are. And Trump being Trump accepted the invitation on the spot. So the stakes are pretty high here. We're looking at these two leaders meeting um, in a span of just a few months, uh, really, since the two were exchanging um, high-level threats about nuclear war in East Asia. Last year, we had, you know, Trump's famous comments on fire and fury, threats to totally destroy North Korea, which Kim Jong-un then rebutted with his letter calling Trump a daughtered. Um, so there's uh, there's really, you know, we've seen a sea change here. But, but what really has changed, and I think the way to begin is maybe to talk a bit about what the South Koreans have actually been saying. So I think the biggest point to emphasize at the beginning of all this is that Really, what we're witnessing right now is the South Koreans in the driver's seat. Um, President Moon Jae-in took what he got. Uh, he has not been dealt a very good card to play in the inter-Korean situation, right? I mean, he came into office last May with an idealistic outset favoring engagement, but he wasn't able to do anything because obviously he had a U.S. president that was determined to apply maximum pressure on North Korea, and then Kim Jong-un wasn't helping him in any way by continuing missile tests. But Moon Jae-in enthusiastically reciprocated Kim Jong-un's New Year's Day speech, Olive Branch, which was, um, first we saw the inter-Korean summit at the Winter Olympics that we've talked a bit about on this podcast already. But now we finally got to this point where we had this remarkable moment where, um, these two South Korean envoys led a delegation to meet Kim Jong-un. And for people that don't follow North Korea, I don't think it's really sunk in just how significant of an event that was. Kim Jong-un has not been photographed with any heads of state since coming to power. And he's very, very, very infrequently seen with foreigners in general. So the fact that he was standing here with Moon Jae-in's kind of top national security official was really a big deal um, in the inter-Korean realm. I mean, certainly those photos will go down as historic and they'll be superseded certainly at the end of April, assuming there is an inter-Korean summit, which appears to be also on the table. It will take place at the Panmunjom Peace Village on the demilitarized zone. Um, so there's a lot going on here. So the South Koreans go to Pyongyang. They have this boozy lunch with Kim Jong-un. And, and I think boozy is important here because according to reports, the liquor just kept coming. Uh, Kim Jong-un served quite a bit of soju. And in the images that North Korean state media re uh, released, you know, very carefully staged for propaganda, you see Kim Jong-un kind of, you know, managing this South Korean delegation. We're all smiling, having a good time, taking notes about their conversations. And then these South Koreans come back to Seoul on, uh, this, and this is March 5th, and they put out this six-point statement um, that includes a, a few incredibly significant concessions from North Korea. So first, the South Koreans say that North Korea has agreed to put denuclearization on the table in upcoming talks between North and South Korea and in uh, any future talks with the United States. 
Um, so it said North Korea had expressed readiness to have candid talks with the United States. And that's not new, right? So we're talking about what's changed and what hasn't. That's really not a new point that North Korea is ready to talk to the United States. Denuclearization also, I mean, it has been on the table in the past in, in inter-Korean talks and uh, talks with the United States. Obviously, that hasn't really seemed like the case in the last year. But I think people really, you know, last year, the day North Korea tested its Hwasong-14 ICBM, uh, and not a lot of people noticed this because people don't read North Korean propaganda, but North Korea's state media, uh, Nodong Shinmun, the country's state-run newspaper, quoted Kim Jong-un the day after that test, saying that we would never give up our nuclear weapons unless, and here I emphasize unless, there's always a conditional statement here, unless the United States ends what North Korea calls its hostile policy. So that again is on the table, but the South Koreans kind of repackaged it as this new kind of major concession from the North Koreans. And all right, you know, I've been, I've been talking a lot, Prashant, I'll just end here for now. We can continue this discussion, um, you know, again, to a bit of a conversation here. But I think the big point is that everything that we've heard so far um, out of what the North Koreans are willing to do has come from South Koreans. The North Koreans have simply not said anything. The North Korean state media coverage of this meeting uh, between the South Korean envoys and Kim Jong-un did not include any mention of denuclearization, did not include any mention of a summit with Donald Trump. It did not include any mention of even tolerating the upcoming U.S.-Korea exercises. So really, there's a lot of confusion right now about what the North Koreans have agreed to, what Trump thinks the North Koreans have agreed to, what the South Koreans think the North Koreans have agreed to. Um, presumably, we're heading towards a summit in April, and then Trump has said that he will endeavor to meet Kim Jong-un by May. I'm skeptical that that timeline really will make sense, especially given that we've just seen the resignation of the Secretary of State here. Um, but yeah, I think that's where we are. So I've, I've said a lot, but you know, we're, um, what, are, what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the key point that you emphasize there is right, which is that you know we've been down this road of negotiations and dialogue with North Koreans many times before, um, and the the key thing to emphasize with the North Koreans is you have to make sure that you're getting down to specifics about what they actually mean behind their rhetoric, and we just, as you correctly said, we don't have a sense of what those specifics are. You know, when the North Koreans say or the South Koreans say that the North Koreans say that they're referring to denuclearization, you know, what does denuclearization mean? Are, are they meaning something similar to the United States? Because if you look at their previous rhetoric, you know, they, they, they clearly don't. Um, and depending on, you know, the, the kind of statements that you're reading, the things that they expect for the United States, for them to consider any sort of de-escalation in terms of what they're doing, you know, it can include anything from you know, withdrawal of U.S. troops from uh, the Korean Peninsula, um, from the United States, as you correctly pointing out, um, you know, resolving this sort of hostile policy, making changes to its alliances in Northeast Asia, including South Korea and Japan. So the, there, there are so many specifics that weren't addressed here. And, and I do share your skepticism as a result about whether these talks will actually take place. I mean, I, it, it is important to emphasize too that this timeline that uh, we've, we've sort of talked about is something that's very quick given the fact that Trump has to also consult with allies and other partners, right? So he's already made calls to China and Japan subsequently. Um, there have been conversations with US allies, but you know, Abe has to come over here for a meeting with, with Trump uh, in April as well. Um, and I'm sure the Japanese, given how the news broke um, and how this has been playing out, have their own concerns um, about their position in all of this. And, you know, with South Korea taking this sort of driver's seat um, in the negotiations, the Japanese 
have their own positions, they have their own interests um, that they want secure. And I, I do think that, you know, in all of this, um, you know, you wrote about this as well um, for us, which is, you know, the concern here is not so much about talks and negotiations. I mean, this is something which is an option that various U.S. leaders and administrations have considered. It's really what's happening around these talks, right? So it's the fact that you have so many personnel that are either not in place or, or, or now fired. Um, you have Trump with his own personal approach where he tweets out policy and kind of swings between extremes. And then you also have, you know, it's still very unclear what Trump's position is with respect to allies. I mean, the notion, traditional notion in U.S. foreign policy with North Korea is you want to make sure you're on the same page with your allies across a range of issues so that North Korea can be managed well. But there's so many other points of friction, whether it's on free trade, um, whether it's on, you know, the these basic notions about the free and open Indo-Pacific and what the United States means, these negotiations are taking place now at, at, a, at a level where um, there's so many uncertainties about U.S. foreign policy more broadly that I think those are being uh, imposed on the North Korea policy itself. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's so much to say about what the Trump administration has really agreed to here. Right. So the administration's big talking point has been that they will not be making any concessions, which, you know, first of all, there's two things to say about that. First, I mean, that's not really a good faith opening position for any kind of productive diplomacy, right? Diplomacy always involves concessions. We saw that with the Iran deal. If you want the North Koreans to give up their nuclear weapons, you will have to give them something in return, be that security assurances of some sort or um, more obviously sanctions relief. That's been the big kind of pressure point. You don't put sanctions on a country as an end in itself. You put sanctions there to use as a bargaining chip in future talks. And the international community has been very successful and very consistent about this over over years. So the Trump administration, first of all, you know, really needs to think about what it will give up and what the red lines are. I mean, obviously, if the North Korea, I mean, the North Koreans are not stupid. They know that an ask like get off our peninsula, withdraw your troops, withdraw your nuclear umbrella from South Korea, break your alliances, leave the entirety of Northeast Asia. They might even call for U.S. troops to leave Japan. And at the most extreme, they might even call for the United States to disarm its nuclear weapons. I'm not even joking. I mean, they actually ran an editorial in uh, in Nodong Shinmun after this inter-Korean meeting. I mean, so if the, if the North Koreans come to the table with offers like that, obviously they're not in a good faith mode. And this was more about Kim Jong-un getting the propaganda victory of being seen with the U.S. president. And this is the second thing, right? I mean, the administration has already made a concession. In fact, they're doing diplomacy backwards with North Korea. I mean, I've been a proponent of talks from the beginning, but the way I always imagine talks, and I think a lot of people imagine talks with North Korea is you begin at a low level. You have the special representative, someone like Joe Yun, go to Pyongyang, meet a relatively low level official on the um, in the Americas department in their foreign ministry, potentially with a representative of the Workers' Party. They start, you know, hammering out very low-level issues, talks about talks. And then, you know, you enter this very long process of hammering out details, kind of like what we saw with the JCPOA. And then maybe at the end of the day, you reward the North Koreans for a good faith negotiation process with a presidential summit. And I mean, you know, like, let's recall that the JCPOA with Iran at no point required a summit between Obama and Khamenei, right? I mean, there's there's other ways to do diplomacy. But obviously, I mean, you know, we are in the Trump era. This isn't a normal uh, State Department. This isn't a normal administration. Trump sees, you know, I think Trump very much believes in the great man 
theory of history that he thinks that, you know, nobody's been able to solve this problem before, but he can go to Pyongyang, meet with Kim Jong-un and use his deal-making skills to hammer out the best possible denuclearization deal the world's ever seen, right? But unfortunately, reality will not work in that way for Donald Trump. Um, and I think that's why it's important to really think about these details. I mean, you know, just to hammer home another point, I wrote an article about this as well. But, you know, the administration has also, you know, I mean, uh, Trump has taken to Twitter to tout this missile freeze that the North Koreans have agreed to, which I think is a great thing. I mean, I, I think, you know, I've, uh, I've been interested in seeing the North Koreans submit to a moratorium on missile testing and nuclear testing. Obviously, a verifiable moratorium would be better, but we've never seen that from North Korea. They agreed to a moratorium in 1999. This is something they've done before, eventually defecting, obviously, in the end. But good. Okay, if the North Koreans aren't testing missiles, they presumably can't improve their ICBMs that final 10% of the way that they need to to have them be fully credible of uh, and capable of striking the United States. But, but has Trump, you know, has the Trump team thought about what a missile freeze means? I mean, the U.S. and South Korea are about to enter exercises. North Korea will have to conduct its own readiness drills during that time. I mean, Kim Jong-un has his own domestic audience costs. I mean, yes, this isn't, isn't a democracy, but Kim Jong-un needs to show regime elites that he isn't about to sell out the country to South Korea, that he is keeping up readiness in case things go topsy-turvy and there is a war. So in that case, you know, the strategic rocket forces of North Korea will probably engage in some kind of proportionate exercise when the United States and South Korea conduct their ground drills, right? Last year, they tested a salvo of Scud missiles. Maybe this year they'll do something different. They'll test, um, maybe they'll use multiple launch rocket systems. So Kim Jong-un thinks he is in good faith complying with that missile freeze. But has the Trump administration, you know, really thought this through? I mean, does a missile system like a 300 millimeter um, MLRS violate the missile freeze? What if they use a short range solid fuel missile? Does that violate the missile freeze? Something like the Toxa? I mean, you know, this might sound like I'm sweating the details too much. I mean, especially given where we are right now. But I mean, this is the reason the Leap Day deal with the Obama administration fell apart in 2012. I mean, the Americans and the North Koreans came to an agreement that involved a moratorium on missile testing in, ex in exchange for food aid. The North Koreans interpreted that deal to not include satellite launches, which they saw as a totally separate civilian application of rocket technology. The United States obviously said no. I mean, the ink had hardly dried on that agreement. Two weeks later, North Korea announced a satellite launch and they went forward with it in April. And the Leap Day deal, you know, immediately fell apart. It was um, a terribly unsuccessful attempt at, at diplomacy with North Korea. And so look, yep. I mean, this is, so here's my thing, you know, I mean, I mean, I sound a little pessimistic, but even if the summit does go through, I think something, you know, the best case outcome will probably be something like that sort of a deal, right? I mean, it is not the perfect denuclearization deal, but it, it could be good. It could be productive in the short run if the North Koreans hold to it. But something or the other will happen at the end. You know, I mean, there will be a misunderstanding. The North Koreans will choose to defect for a variety of reasons. The United States will fail to implement its commitments in good faith. And ultimately, you know, the scary scenario that some people have written about is who does Trump blame when things fall apart? Does he blame Moon Jae-in? Does he blame Kim Jong-un? And what does he do then? Does he see that all options have been exhausted and the only option that remains is the military option? Or does he kind of do what the Obama administration or the Bush administration did, which is just kind of sit on this hot potato and wait to pass it to your successor? Um, I mean, the Obama administration really took that approach with strategic patience, right? You expend all this capital on the JCPOA with Iran, and then at the end of the day, you plan to pass the North Korean hot potato to your successor. So Trump, you know, if, if all goes well, I mean, um, you know, you would think that even if an agreement falls apart, the Trump administration would, would see it fit to just maintain its maximum pressure policy, which is really strategic patience in a different guise and wait to pass this off. But I'm not so sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, you're right to sort of sweat the details here because, you know, the North Koreans, it's not like we're starting from scratch here, right? The North Koreans have a record of distrust when it comes to these um, negotiations. Um, and so it, it really is important for us to be clear about, you know, the, the parameters of, of any agreement. And I also think, you know, the, the, the commentary coming out um, after these talks were announced, it was really interesting to see because you had concerns about the two extremes of what might happen, right? So, you know, some observers worrying about, you know, Trump falling for some kind of deal that he would cut with uh, Kim Jong-un at the expense of allies and the, at the expense of U.S. interests. But then on the other hand, you know, this might be an absolute failure and, and the summit may not even actually happen. And, you know, you wouldn't put it above Trump to just tweet, you know, after, you know, multiple conversations with, you know, my counterparts, I've decided that, you know, I'm, we're no longer going to hold these discussions and, you know, end of summit, end of discussion. Um, so, you know, there are, the, there are those two extreme scenarios. And I do think, you know, underpinning all of this is really uncertainty about whether Trump's emergence and his elevation of this North Korea issue as something that's too, so closely tied to a personal priority might complicate the end scenario, which I which I think is the one that is the most probable one, which is, you know, we've talked about this before in the podcast, the U.S. having to live in some way with a nuclear North Korea, right? So if Trump ties his political fortunes and his own personal prestige to uh, these things that he's tweeting out, that the North Koreans have promised to do this and we're going to achieve great things, and he goes and he's not able to achieve that, you know, how is he going to actually save face uh, given what's happening? I mean, this, you know, accepting a, a nuclear North Korea is already such a big thing for the United States in any administration. But if President Trump, you know, puts so much of his personal appeal and prestige to this goal, doesn't that make it, you know, more difficult for him to actually countenance this as some kind of, you know, face-saving measure or, or victory in some way? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't put it above uh, Trump to change the narrative uh, once more, uh, as he's always done. But I do think that's something that, you know, really plays into people's minds when, when you're talking about North Korea. Because, you know, earlier on, we, we had these conversations about a bloody you know, strategy. We had conversations about, you know, what is the Trump administration's approach to North Korea. But we didn't have Trump come in and sort of tie his sort of personal political fortunes to such a big deal as a summit. Um, but now that he's done that, you know, I, I do think that makes people very nervous. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one variable that we haven't really talked about is the South Koreans here. I mean, uh, we've talked about how they're leading this whole process of rapprochement between North Korea and the United States, shuttling between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. I mean, the South Korean National Security Advisor and um, the National Intelligence Services Chief became the first two officials from any country to meet both Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump in the span of a week, right? So that's pretty incredible to begin with. But the, I think the South Koreans have done something smart here, which is that they've set up this inter-Korean summit that has to happen first and has to be successful before the U.S. summit can happen, right? So Moon Jae-in is going to presumably meet with Kim Jong-un and look to extract a joint statement that includes on paper written down the assurances that South Korea has already conveyed verbally, right? So that in itself would be a huge, huge victory, I think. Especially, I mean, depending on how denuclearization comes up in that statement, right? If, if it doesn't come up at all, 
I think it ends there, and the U.S. probably won't be able to go into the summit for a variety of reasons. But, you know, we might see some iteration of denuclearization appear. I mean, even if it's the propagandistic version of North Korea's uh, hostile policy formulation, which, first of all, I think is really problematic for the South Koreans to submit to because it effectively shows that they're open to uh, accepting concessions on the alliance. Um, So, you know, that would not be a great outcome, but it's still, I think, better than denuclearization not showing up at all. And then, you know, I think the the kind of pipe dream outcome would be something like the 2005 declaration on, de- on denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which said North Korea would return to the NPT and submit sure. to the um, IAEA, right? I think that's also maybe a little bit too far at this point for Kim Jong-un. Um, but the South Koreans have done something smart by, by allowing Moon Jae-in to have that summit first and get something out of Kim Jong-un. Um, I think they prevent that outcome where, you know, Trump walks in entirely unprepared with mismatched expectations to reality to meet Kim Jong-un, who, you know, stages, you know, walks away with a great propaganda opportunity, but really concedes nothing. So I think using the outcome of the inter-Korean summit as the stepping stone to some kind of productive discussion with Kim Jong-un is, is I think, the valuable um, role that the South Koreans are playing here. Um, and I think they've, you know, they've been careful to make sure that they can give Trump something to work with here. But again, I mean, you know, we uh, you brought this up earlier that, uh, you know, Rex Tillerson was just fired today, um, leaving the U.S. with basically, you know, few people who favor diplomacy with North Korea. He'll be replaced by Mike Pompeo, who's been famously hawkish on North Korea as CIA director. He'll have to go through confirmation hearings. We'll probably be without a secretary of state for a while. I mean, Tillerson's still in the role, but no one's really going to take his word seriously. Not that they were really to begin with in the in the past few weeks. Um, but not only that, I mean, you know, you look at the bench in the State Department on North Korea. I mean, Joseph Yun, um, the special representative for North Korea policy, somehow coincidentally retired the Friday before this major breakthrough, right? So, I mean, uh, that timing was not great. And, you know, we've had no ambassador for the United States in South Korea well, we actually have a very capable charge d'affaires there, a Mark Knapper, whose name has come up as somebody that could either become a a new, um, you know, a presidential envoy or potentially become a permanent ambassador there if Trump were to go that way. So he's someone that can look at this, you know, uh, Mark Lambert's another name that's been brought up. He's on the Korea desk at the State Department, uh, works on these. So, you know, I mean, there are people that could play a role here, but, you know, this is... When I think about the role that they could play, I mean, it really, again, just does not comport with the reality of what we've observed about the Trump State Department. Um, I think the State Department, you know, would have played a a big role in kind of a, a normal administration where you imagine diplomacy with North Korea ramping up from the lower levels to a presidential summit. But we're beginning with a presidential summit. Okay, unconventional, doesn't necessarily have to fail. Um, let's talk about, you know, some of the optimistic scenarios, too. I mean... People ask me like, what could Trump get done, even if it's uh, even if he doesn't get denuclearization done? I mean, there are a few things here, right? I think one of the big things would be for the two countries to set up military-to-military communications in some way across the DMZ with U.S. forces Korea. You have two nuclear states; they like to threaten each other with nuclear war. It's not a good thing that they can't talk to each other, right? We learned that in the 1950s and early 1960s between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Um, it's not. A, a state of affairs that's particularly sustainable, especially given North Korea's highly aggressive first strike nuclear doctrine, their poor command and control, and their lack of sufficient early warning. That just creates very, very dangerous first strike incentives and the ability to 
you know, pick up the phone, talk to an American or pick up the phone, talk to a North Korean can go a really long way. The United States and North Korea don't have that. The two Koreas have that, but it's important for the United States to have that. And, you know, for Kim Jong-un, that would be sort of a propaganda victory as well. You know, he would see it as kind of the United States treating North Korea as a, a nuclear power on, on the same level as the United States on one level. So that's the first thing that Trump could get done here, right? And I think that's, that's really positive and not particularly difficult or particularly controversial in my opinion. I think people will find it controversial for other reasons, you know, legitimizing North Korea's nuclear program, yada, yada. I think avoiding a nuclear war should override those considerations. And the second thing Trump could get done is um, a an open-ended moratorium, a verifiable moratorium, a freeze on missile testing and development. Um, and here it will require, again, some creativity, some technical expertise. I mean, maybe you let North Korea test all of their liquid fuel missiles up to 1,000 kilometers, right? Those systems like the SCUDs are, you know, I don't like them, but if, you know, if we're going to have to reach a compromise, it, it might be something that, you know, we could tolerate that, you know, that means that they don't test solid fuel missiles, submarine launch systems, ICBMs, intermediate range ballistic missiles, the one that can strike Guam, for example. Um, and in exchange, you know, they might request some kind of aid or plausibly sanctions relief. And I think the United States should be ready to uh, implement some of that. I mean, again, you know, sanctions are not an end in themselves. Um, so, those are just a couple things that I think could really come out of this and be productive. Again, I don't think it's realistic that either of those outcomes can really be taken for granted or a summit can be taken for granted. But that's not to say that, you know, um, just because we're not particularly faithful in Trump's ability to actually cinch a deal with North Korea, that there isn't any value here in uh, in talking. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, the, the, the verification piece is going to be very important, um, you know, at the, given North Korea's... Uh, <laughs> previous record of, of distrust and, and, and cheating in this respect, that, that will be the sort of difficult uh, piece of that. And the other thing is, um, you know, you mentioned aid and assistance. I mean, that's something which I, I think personally, that's easier for the U.S. to concede rather than some of these other sort of uh, military concessions, right? Like whether it's suspension of uh, certain exercises, um, whether if they're talking about adjustments in U.S. defense posture, I mean, you'll note, you know, when when the sort of dual freeze proposal that was floated, um, you know, entered Washington D.C., you know, that that proposal was treated with a lot of sort of skepticism, right? Um, because it's it's sort of uh, seen as uh, a broader question of U.S. commitment to the region rather than just uh, U.S. North Korea uh, relations or U.S. relations with. Northeast Asian allies. But I think that that'll be a sort of a difficult piece to to achieve. Um, but the other thing is, um, you know, you mentioned that um, there's this sort of, um, you know, sort of gap, I guess, uh, of officials who potentially be for engagement. Um, and there are sort of figures who'd be able to step into that position. I think the one thing that's striking about uh, Trump relative to some of the other presidents that we've had, right, whether it's um, Obama, whether it's even, you know, John F. Kennedy, go back uh, decades. Um, this is a president who doesn't want uh, major dis disagreements with his views in top high-level officials, right? So if you note after Tillerson's firing, you know, what, what, what did Trump say? Trump said, well, he, he disagreed with me on, on policy and he, we just didn't see eye to eye. And, you know, and maybe Pompeo, given the fact that we see, we have more of an agreement, you know, that might be better. Uh, for U.S. policy, so um, my my uh, very pessimistic uh, prediction here is that, irrespective of who you have, um, you know, on, in the diplomatic bench, 
what Trump wants to do with, with North Korea policy, if it's something that's elevated to a level of a summit and he ties himself to it, no, nothing will really be able to get done at that high level. I mean, I do think if this is something that becomes a, a failure or perhaps it doesn't achieve as much and it's kicked back down to the lower levels, that's actually when you might see a, a lot more action. But, you know, I, personally, I'm, I'm doubtful that uh, we'll, we'll see much change there. Yeah. So, all right, I think we've mostly touched on the big points. I mean, you know, I think this is going to be one of those issues that's going to be looming over the U.S.-Asia agenda for the next few months, or maybe it blows up by next week. You never know. You know, like you said, <laughs> Trump might just come out and tweet that um, enough is enough. The North Koreans haven't actually told us anything about denuclearizing, so they're probably not serious. Um, but again, you know, we don't know. Um, you know, there are reports that the South Koreans told Trump something specifically that has not appeared in the press yet. Sounds a little mysterious. You know, there's, there's speculation that apparently... The South Koreans might have conveyed that Kim Jong-un gave them an assurance that he would release the three American citizens who continue to be in North Korean custody. So that's interesting. Again, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I can imagine that being something that would get Trump's interest, right? He looks, you know, with the upcoming midterms coming up and obviously re-election in 2020, you know, being the guy who rescued all the remaining American citizens after uh, the tragic fate of Otto Warmbier, who Trump has um, sadly turned into something of a political prop uh, on, on North Korea policy. I think, you know, I can see Trump going for that. Uh, so again, we don't know the full picture here. There's a lot going on that only the South Koreans really know, to be honest. Um, so we'll we'll definitely be coming back to this soon. Um, but yeah, not, I, yeah, go ahead. I, no, I, I said I, I do think, you know, what you said about the midterms, I think, is a really crucial point. And I think it's, you know, it's important for, for listeners to keep that in mind. Um, because I think, you know, we saw a lot of commentary coming out after the, the, the announcement of talks last week. Um, and, you know, if you, but if you look at it from Trump's perspective and you look at it in terms of the news media coverage, right, when you... You looked at the news coverage at the beginning of the day. Um, it was about, you know, tariffs. It was about the Russia investigation. It was about Stormy Daniels. By the end of the day, um, all the news outlets, the major news outlets, were talking about North Korea and, and and this issue first. And all these other concerns about President Trump were actually uh, second on the radar. Um, so if you look at it from a short-term media coverage perspective for President Trump, it was actually a win. And and the fact that it's a primary year. I think is is a really important uh, consideration for him because you know that, as some people have argued, I mean, this is a president who hasn't stopped campaigning since he come to he's come to office. Right, you're absolutely right. And actually, you know, the the perfect piece of evidence is in his recent campaign rally. You know, he talked about all of this North Korea news, and he said, you know, we'll see. Well, you know, we'll see what'll happen. Things are really open ended right now. But hey, the press praised it. He actually said that. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely a real big part of this. I mean, you know, I'm not one of those people that thinks Trump's playing like twelve dimensional chess with everything that he does and like is a master manipulator of the media but i mean he he does get this stuff he does get how to control the news cycle um for for a uh, you know a span of weeks so we'll see if this actually leads to something you know i mean maybe he even forgets he agreed to a summit and then it comes up and then he gets on a plane <laughs> yeah. grumbling and goes to meet kim jong-un gets it over with i mean anything could happen you know we have uh, we have been crossing kind of new firsts in in what's possible in u.s foreign policy so we'll see where all this goes um but prashant thanks a lot for joining me today yeah good to be with you so for our listeners, if you liked what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. And if you're a subscriber and you've been listening for a while and you like what you hear on the podcast, do leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. It really helps the show out. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.